Acts chapter 5, and we have come as far as verse 17. Remember, we were uh, introduced to Ananias and Sapphira, and we watched the situation there where God's judgment came on them in regards to their hypocrisy and trying to give an impression of things that were not true amongst God's people. And then this kind of grand conclusion after that, that through the apostles, great miracles and signs were being done, and it says multitudes are being added to this baby church. Multitudes. And it says people then begin to come from other cities and towns. That's the first time in the book of Acts we're hearing that. They're coming now from beyond the borders of Jerusalem. And it says they're hoping that even the shadow of Peter might fall upon them. So we don't know if everybody was healed when that happened, but we know some people must have been healed or they wouldn't have been trying to do that. And we're seeing signs and wonders very much reminiscent of the ministry of Christ himself when he was on earth through the apostles at this point in time. Now, the ruling religious class is struggling with this. They're having a hard time. Uh, You know that Caiaphas, who really was the functioning high priest, Annas, his father-in-law, recognized by Jewish people, but the Roman government and the majority of the people recognized Caiaphas, they were Sadducees. Uh, they were hedonists. They believed in the first five books of Moses, but they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in resurrection. That, you know, And they're the ruling party. They, they're wealthy. They're in con- control of money. They're in cahoots with the Roman government. They're a corrupt religious system. And now they have these Christians meeting in Solomon's porch, right in the temple precincts, First 3,000 are saved, then we hear there's 5,000 men, no doubt, plus women and children. And now it's just saying just multitudes now are being gathered to them. The the miracles are being done, the gospel is being preached every day, and Jesus Christ is revealing himself in so many ways. And they're busy during these days. No doubt they watch what happened on Pentecost when 3,000 were saved. No doubt, you know, we see them with Peter and John when the, when the crippled man, the lame man is healed. They drag them in and they question them and then they threaten them and say, don't preach in this name anymore. And Peter says, well, you, you know, make up your mind. Is it, do you think we should obey God or obey you? And they go out and they rejoice that they were threatened and uh, they pray. And it says the place where they were was shaken they were all filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. And it tells us how people were giving. Remember Barnabas then uh, giving a piece of land and laying the money at the apostles' feet, which brings us to the Ananias and Sapphira situation. And now to this great moving of the Spirit in the early church. And now tonight we have the reaction of the religious leadership in Jerusalem to that movement. It says in verse 17, then, when all this is happening, the high priest, which was Caiaphas, rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with 
King James says indignation. Yours might say envy, might say jealousy. It's a Greek word that means to be boiling or to be steaming. And the idea is they're filled with envy. They're filled because the multitudes are in the temple precincts listening to Peter, James, and John and the other ten, the apostles. So it says at this point, you know, it's like steam is blowing out of their ears. And it says, and they laid hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So now, this is not just Peter and John this time. This is the apostles, plural. This is all 12 of them. They lay hands on them. We're assuming it's not during the day in the public because it's going to tell us a little further in the chapter. They were afraid to try to take them publicly because they didn't want the people to stone them. So evidently, somehow, they know their whereabouts. They get hold of them. And now they're not going in. Peter and John were kind of in a holding area, no doubt, in the temple precincts. They're getting put in the common prison, which is a rough area. And it's all 12 of them. So in one fell swoop, the entire leadership of the early church is all of a sudden in prison, snatched away. The, all of the apostles, the, the, the whole leadership of that early church all of a sudden is put into this common prison. Interesting picture, the, the, what takes place. And we love verse 19 because it begins with but. The apostles are all put in prison but that's a good thing. They're gonna the leadership's now gonna find them in contest with spiritual forces. Um, political and empty religious authorities are always powerless when they are immoral. They may have civil authority with them. They may have clout in a community or a nation, but whenever authority is immoral, it has no real authority. And the church has been here for 2,000 years, and governments have come and gone and turned to dust. Napoleon and Hitler and rulers and the, you know Charlemagne, it's all come and it's gone, turned to smoke. And the Bible is still here, and the church is still here, and the Holy Spirit is still here. And in this picture, we have this empty, dead religious system snatching these 12 guys now and putting them into the common prison. But, I love that, but the angel of the Lord, now it's an angel of the Lord, notice it says, by night... It just says he opened the prison doors. Angels don't need keys to do that. And they brought them forth. And this angel said, go, stand, and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. So they get set free. They don't flee in fear. They're not getting delivered so they can be safe. They're getting delivered so they can be used. This supernatural act of this angel coming. Now, Peter's going to experience it again. 
uh, chapter 12, the, the end of the angel's going to open the doors when he's in prison. I'm not sure if Peter says, I know you, you know. But, but here, this angel comes and opens a prison door. All 12 of them are witnesses of this. It seems like the guards are completely unaware that it's happening. It just seems like they don't even know the doors are opening. This angel leads them out and says to these 12, go, and it's, it's, the tenses are, be going, and having taken your stand in the temple, teach the people, speak to them, you know. So this remarkable scene evolves. It's the first incident in the book of Acts with angels, and there are five of them. You know, this is a glorious time. The Holy Spirit is moving 54 times. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. Here in this scene, we have this angel involved overriding, you know, civil authority and government. Then we have in chapter 8, it says an angel goes to Philip and tells him to go down south into the desert where he meets the Ethiopian eunuch. We have in chapter 10, an angel comes to a centurion named Cornelius and tells him to go and send to Simon the Tanner's house where Peter is. And then Peter goes and ends up, of course, speaking in the home of Cornelius, and all these Gentiles are saved. They're gathered in. In chapter 12, we have there three times. We have the angel that comes to Peter when he's in prison, opens the door, takes him out, and then it says the angel disappears, and then Peter realizes it wasn't a dream. It was really an angel. And it tells us towards the end of that chapter that Herod Agrippa gets up and gives a great speech. And he's shining with his silver and he's glistening. And his speech is so impressive. People are saying, wow, this is like a god. And because says, because he doesn't give God the glory, an angel strikes him down with worms. The angel of the worms, I guess. I don't know. And then we have again in... Um, chapter 28, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, converted on the, the ship in the storm, and it says an angel came and stood by him and directed him. So there are five times at least angels are active in the book of Acts, and this is the first picture we have. And this angel comes to them. They're, you know, it's not like they had a light switch. Or it's dark. They're in a Roman prison that's that's working in conjunction with the Levites, who were the temple police, who who had the sanction of the Romans to exercise their authority. And this angel comes, and he brought them forth verse 19, and says to them, be going, get on your way, and then take your stand. It's literally having taken your stand. Speak in the temple to the people. And wonderfully, he says, all of the words of this life. Isn't it interesting to hear the way an angel talks about the gospel? All of the words of this life. It's interesting. We're going to have this life We're going to have this name. We're going to have this man's blood. We're going to have this counsel. We're going to have this work. So very specific things you follow through here that the church is involved in. And he he says here, you go and speak all the words of this life. 
You know, Jesus had said in John chapter 6, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and life. It says many of the, the Lord's disciples fell back and he said to Peter and the guys, are you guys going to go as well? And Peter looked at him and said, who else has the words of eternal life? And the angel looks at it and says, you go speak the words of life. Listen, how many of us, including myself, had gotten saved somewhere listening to the word, someone witnessing to us, someone telling us about Jesus, and God decides to use that? Imagine, as such as us, he's chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and he just chooses to do that. You know, I have this interesting story. This, uh, it's, it's a little bit different, but this, I had changed phone numbers years ago and uh, got a new cell phone number because my, my phone was blowing up. I'd get 152 calls in two or three days, you know, and I had a bad attitude and I hated my phone. So I got a new phone. Nobody knew the number. But a couple years later, we get an email from this gal and she said, I just want you to know that I got your number. And she said, my phone was driving me crazy. And I, I cursed you. I don't know who you were. And I'm thinking, who is this Pastor Joe? Who is this? And then so she said, finally, I found the website. And I started to listen. And I gave my life to Christ. <laughs> Wherever you are, if you're out there, God bless you. I'd love to meet you face to face someday. You know. But the interesting thing is, it, it was just the word. You start listening to the word. You know, the the words of this life and how they can touch us and how they can change us. I remember my friend that had gotten saved before I did, witnessing to me. You know, and how that changes. So he says, you go, and you stand in that temple. And when an angel tells you to do that, you know what you do. Yeah, you go and you stand in the temple. When an angel comes and opens the door of the prison and says, you go, you do this, that's what you do. Be going, having taken your stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, no doubt, they entered into the temple. Now look what it says. It's entering. It says early in the morning because the temple precincts didn't open until about 6 o'clock in the morning. So the interesting thing that's implied here, we've read that the angel came to them at night. doesn't tell us whether it's the first watch, is it early, but he tells them that he wants them the next day. Evidently that's implied to go to the temple because it says when morning was come, they went. How many hours were there through the rest of the night before the morning came and they went to the temple? Did any of these guys go home to their homes? Some of them lived in Jerusalem. Imagine, gals, your husband comes in and lays down in bed. He's like this. And you say, what is up with you? Don't ask me, honey. Don't ask me. Where were you? I was in prison. In prison? What did you do? I told you. you know, no, you know, what are you doing here? How'd you get here? An angel came and let us out. What do you mean us? Well, they were all, we were all together. You guys are going to get in trouble. You know, just imagine what happened that night. Or did they all stay together and pray somewhere? But there's a time lapse between at night when the angel opens the prison doors and lets them out 
And then it says it's in the morning when they go to the temple to do what the angels told them to do. And, you know, imagine any of us. We're, we're in a prison somewhere. Could happen, the world we're living in, you know. And an angel comes and sets us free and says, manana, you know, I want you to go and I want you to... What do you do with those hours in between? What do you do with those hours? You know, just imagine what it was like for them. <clears throat> and it says, so early in the morning they went and they taught. But the high priest came and they that were with him, because this is the day he's expecting to bring these 12 guys in, and he called the council together and all the senate of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Go get them. And when the officers who were Levites came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told this to the, it's the Sanhedrin that's gathered, saying... Now, it's very interesting because scholars say verse 23 is very much militaristic in the way it's written and stated because it's just the facts. This is what they said. The prison truly we found shut. Everything was safe. The keepers were standing out before the doors. They were there watching everything. But when we opened the door... We found no man within. It's very succinct the way it's written, uh, very much in keeping with militaristic position. So prison truly we found was shut. All was good. Everything was safe. Keepers were standing there without the doors. But when we opened up, nobody was there. Now, verse 24, when the high priest, Caiaphas again, and the captain of the temple... And the chief priests heard these things. King James says they doubted of them whereunto this would grow, which means they wonder what in the world's going to go on now. That's the idea. What in the world is this all about? Then, as they're listening to this, thinking about it, came one and told them, saying, now this must be a Levite or a Sadducee as well. He has access to the Sanhedrin. He came and told them, saying, Behold, consider this, the men whom you put in prison, they're standing in the temple teaching the people. The guys you're looking for, they're free. They're out there. Now look, here's an interesting thing. Dr. Luke is writing this to us. Dr. Luke hadn't even been, at this time, he hadn't even joined Paul and begun to travel with him. So the person who was a member of the Sanhedrin who was eyewitness and ear witness to all this was Saul of Tarsus, who no doubt communicated these things to Luke, and Luke had placed them in the record. We know from the beginning of Luke's gospel. He's thorough. He's a chronologer. He is a doctor. He is astute in language and terminology. There are many medical terms through the book, and he is incredibly accurate in everything he writes. So here, for him to give us the details of what was actually said and what went on in that meeting, somebody on the inside, which of course would have been Paul, who he worked with for years and traveled with, told him what was being said. You know, we're in the meeting. 
The guards came back and said everything was in order, but the guys are gone. And the high priest is scratching his head, and everybody said, what in the world is going on? And then some character comes in and says, hey, the guys you're looking for, they're standing in the temple teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers, the temple officers again, and notice this. They brought them without violence. I guess they did. Here's the reason. For they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. So we assume the first time they took them, then they didn't take them publicly and make a big show. This time it says they went and they got them. They brought them without violence because they didn't want to be stoned. And here's the, here's the deal. The temple is still under construction. It would be under construction for another few decades. There were stones everywhere. When you go to Israel, today there's stones everywhere, but there were all kinds of stones always laying around these precincts to whack people there. A couple of times in John's Gospel, they took up stones to stone Jesus. There's stones. There's no problem. So these guys say, look, let's be nice. Let's say pretty please. Come with us and let's take these guys without violence. And when they had brought them, they set them, all 12 of them, now before the council. And the high priest asked them. Now, the interesting thing is here, he doesn't say, how the heck did you guys get out of that prison? There's not even the question, because he's a Sadducee. He don't want to hear nothing about angels. He don't want to hear anything supernatural. He, he doesn't want to hear. Listen to what he says. It's interesting. He, he says to them... Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Good work, boys. They got no radio. They got no social media. They can't text. They can't, you know, they got none of that going. They can't use no cell phones. They have filled Jerusalem and it's a perfect tense there. It means, it means it has become filled and it stands filled today with this doctrine. Just imagine the multitudes and multitudes are coming to listen to these guys. And he said, we commanded you back in chapter 4, don't talk in this name. They had threatened him. And behold, now you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And look what he says. And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Does that sound familiar? You intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I believe Caiaphas has a guilty conscience. Because when they stood with Pontius Pilate, Pontius Pilate wanted to release Jesus. And they said, no, no, give us Barabbas. And Pontius Pilate said, what then do you want me to do with this man called Jesus? They screamed, crucify him, crucify him. He crucified him. He said, why? I find no wrong in him. They said, crucify him, crucify him. And then Pontius Pilate, of course, took the water and washed his hands and said, I'm, you know, I'm done with it. Washing my hands of the whole thing, not knowing the Apostles' Creed would say, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, rose again the third day for the rest of history. But, uh, but they cried, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. Right? That's three months before this. Let his blood be on us and our children. 
Caiaphas now is dealing with the fact that angels are involved, miracles are taking place, that all of Jerusalem is filled with the teaching of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we're sitting here this evening. And he said, he said, I know what you're doing. You're intending to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter, notice, and the other apostles, plural, answered and said, and it seems Peter's the spokesman again. He says, we ought to obey God rather than men. He had said to them before, Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, you figure that out. Now this time, Peter says to them, um, we ought to obey God rather than men. By the way, the ought there, I'm not sure what your translation says, it literally says we must, it's emphatic. There's an emphasis on the word there. We must obey God rather than man. That's something good for us to remember in the world we're living in today. Our first duty is to the captain of our faith, to the Lord. He said, we must obey God rather than men. Uh, boy, we could, at every turn of our life during the day, remember that. Would, would, would guide us. It would be great for us to do that. And then he says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree. There's nothing seeker-friendly about this message here now, Peter, is doing this. And look, but the, the thing that where there's still mercy is, he says, the God of our fathers speaking to the Jewish leaders and their fathers were held together by a messianic hope. Their fathers believed that by faith they would be Abraham's seed. And when he talks to them, he says, our fathers, talking to the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin. He, he's, he's your father and our father. You know, there's still mercy being extended here. He says, our fathers. This is, this is our heritage. This is, the, this is the world we live in. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, and the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection, whom you slew and hung on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince. Verse 31 says, and a savior, that's the first time in the book of Acts the word savior is used, fourth time in the New Testament. He's put him his right hand to be prince and savior, the reason to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. He's speaking the words of this life. This is the savior. He's come to give repentance the ability to turn away and turn to him. And that with repentance, there should be, it, it says forgiveness, the, the Greek word is remission. Sins are sent away as far as the east is from the west. Here's Peter in the middle of all this, having been threatened. But when angels come and set you free and say, go give it to them, boys, you know, it's, it's, it's great, you know, encouragement to do that. 
So he says, you know, he's been exalted, God's right hand, raised from the dead, and God's made him prince and savior. But the reason that he did that is to give repentance to Israel and the remission of their sins. And we are witnesses of these things. Jesus told them, stay in Jerusalem until they were due with power to be witnesses of these things. We are witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. And this obedience here is, is in repentance and faith. Those, that's the context, who come to Christ, realize he's Savior, ask forgiveness. God then gives the Holy Spirit to them. Look in verse 33. It says, when they heard that they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. When they heard that, King James says they were cut to the heart. It's a Greek phrase that says, when they heard that, they were sawn in two. I don't know what your translation says. They were sawn in two, it says here remarkably. And they took counsel to kill these men. Look, sawn in two by the words of life that Peter was speaking. The phrase there, sawn in two, is passive. It was nothing to do with them or Peter. It's the words that are being spoke that do all the work that are splitting them down the middle and sawing them into two. Look, you're here tonight. You're an unbeliever. Unbelievers should only be sliced to be opened up to then come to repentance and remission of sins. It's only a hardened person and a hardened religious person, a hardened immoral person, that the words about God's love and his forgiveness saw them in two. You know, you and I, when I came to Christ, I melted, I wept. His love overwhelmed me. Yeah, it saw me in two and healed me at the same time. But if all it does is split us open and aggravate us, it's because we're not genuine. You know, it's the world out there. And there's antagonism, there's hatred. In our study in Revelation, men are shaking their fist at the sky and blaspheming his name. They know where it's coming from. It says, Then stood up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, or my friends in Israel call him Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had held in great reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth for a little space. So Gamaliel is going to stand up here. Gamaliel, we're told in chapter 22, Paul, when he is speaking there, um, says, making his defense, and he's, he's standing in the temple courts. The Romans have taken him after the riot. He says, let me talk to the people. And they said, all right, go on. And he starts to speak in Hebrew. And he, he, he says to them, men and brethren, fathers, hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence. He said, I am verily a man which am a Jew. Born in Tarsus, a city of Cilicia, yet brought up in this city, Jerusalem, 
at the feet of Gamaliel and taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers and was zealous to God all the days of my life. He said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. In secular history, I believe it's Josephus, tells us that Gamaliel said it was impossible to keep Saul of Tarsus in books. Saul would have, would have loved, you know, Kindle or something, you know, just... He said it was impossible to keep this man in books. He studied and he read and he studied and he read. And this man, Gamaliel, I'm hoping we're going to see him in heaven. I, I, I have a set of Encyclopedia Judaica in my office and looking at him, they called him Rabban. In, in the New Testament, you have Rabbi, which is teacher, Rabbi. You have Rabboni, which is only used twice in the Gospels, once by Mary Magdalene and once by the, the blind son of Bartimaeus, the blind man, which means my Lord or my teacher. It's very personal. And then there's Rabban. And they said this term Rabban was only given to seven men in the history of Israel. And Gamaliel was one of them. Rabban Gamaliel. It's somebody who the nation embraced and loved and held. So this man, Gamaliel, it says here, he was the grandson of Hillel. You guys have heard of Hillel and Shemei, some of the great debates in Israel over theology. Um, Hillel, I believe, was uh, 35 B.C. 35 B.C. to 4 A.D. Um, and the, the, the Pharisees and Sadducees in Jesus' day always pitched Shemei and Hillel against each other. Hillel was more liberal towards reasons for divorce. Um, Shemei said no, only for adultery. Hillel said no, there's other reasons. He has a son, but then his grandson is Gamaliel. Gamaliel was known for his wisdom, his holiness. There were two things about him. He was, um, he was more in his theology long-suffering towards the women who were victims of divorce because the law made no favor for them at all. And he was also more lenient to Gentile proselytes who came to Judaism. But he was known for his holiness. He was friendly towards those in the diaspora, the Jews who had been scattered. The Talmud has, presented, has preserved three letters written by him in the original text. Encyclopedia Judaica says, according to Acts, Gamaliel was tolerant towards the first Christians, and Paul was one of his pupils. The sages regard Gamaliel, their regard for him is expressed in this saying, when Rabban Gamaliel the elder died, the glory of the Torah ceased, and purity and separateness perished in Israel. These are the sages that when Gamaliel died, the, the glory of the Torah departed from Israel and holiness and separateness perished in the land. That's why it says he was held in great regard here. Now, there's some interesting things about the guy. In the school of Gamaliel, one of the greatest teachers was Nicodemus. 
Jesus, Nick at night, the whole story there. Nicodemus, the, Josephus tells us his name was Nicodemus Ben, son of Gurion, G-O-R-I-O-N, and that he was actually the young, young, young brother of Josephus, the historian. He was the third richest man in Jerusalem, Nicodemus, Ben-Gurion, and his daughter in secular history is known to have one of the most opulent weddings that the nation of Israel had ever seen. The, the money that was spent, the jewels, the gold, the, the food, you know, all of this. But of course, Nicodemus with Joseph of Arimathea become disciples of Jesus. And in the end, they come out. And history tells us that because Nicodemus became a disciple of Jesus, he lost all of his wealth. He lost everything. And there's record that says his daughter was seen in a barn scraping barley off the floor, which was animal feed, because they were so poor. History tells us this clearly. Because he had been the main teacher in the school of Gamaliel, because they had become such good friends, it says when he was excommunicated from Judaism, which was before this, months before this, that Nicodemus went and lived with Gamaliel. And in the Roman calendar, August 3rd, is the day of St. Nicodemus of Kafir Gamala. It is the day of Saint Nicodemus of the house of Gamaliel. So, as we go into this section together now, and we're listening to this supposed tolerance Gamaliel has, it may be because Nicodemus is in his house saying, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, we wrapped his body. They hate us. Yeah, we took it down. We pulled the thorns out of his brow. We we washed all the cuts. We wrapped him in linen. We put him in Joe's tomb. I'm telling you, we saw him three days later. I'm telling you, we listened to him. He taught. I'm telling you, he got up. He's alive. I'm sure he was telling Gamaliel these things. And I, for one, am hoping to see Gamaliel in glory. That would be so wonderful. But it says, these guys are cut to the heart. They want to slay them. They're furious. Then stood up there one of the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people and commanded to put the apostles forth a little bit just so we could talk, just get them out of you know range so they don't hear us speaking. And said unto them, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do as touching these men. Now Saul is there listening. For before these days, if you remember, he says, there rose up Thaddeus, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain. And all as many as obeyed him or joined him, they were scattered and brought to nothing. And he says, and after this rose up Judas, 
of Galilee in the days of the taxing, and he drew away much people after him because he claimed to be a disciple of Messiah and so forth. He also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, they were dispersed. He says, look, he's going to say, history teaches us this. Sometimes it's good to be patient and to watch. Now, Gamaliel is being used of the Lord here. I'm not sure if he realizes that. But what he says is true. Sometimes there's crazy things that go on amongst God's people. Sometimes there's, there's wacko stuff that goes on. Sometimes, there, sometimes the right thing to do is to take a step back and to watch. And say, what's going to happen here? Because his point's going to be, you know what? If it's not of the Lord, it's going to peter out. And I've been watching this for 50 years. You know, the church sometimes talks about being culturally relevant. That's really not what they're talking about. They just don't know it. Hudson Taylor in China was culturally relevant because he was in a culture that was 3,000 years old. What people talk about today when they say culturally relevant, they really mean trend relevant. And in 10 years, trends are gone. And this is still here. This is still here. The Holy Ghost is still here. This is still Jim Simbla, who's a friend, said the church never moves forward unless it falls back on the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. So sometimes it's good just to watch. The funny thing is, look, when the whole church was closed down because of COVID, now I was standing here preaching to an empty sanctuary. Imagine you guys sitting right there. Imagine you guys sitting there pretending you guys were sitting there. I know where your faces belong. You know, uh, you know, uh, watching all of that at the same time because people were home and they appreciated that we had the live stream. But they were going on media and hearing every screwball in the world at the same time. All of these, because when the church started to gather, they said, Pastor Joe, did you hear this guy down in, uh, you know, Tennessee? He this prophecy, you know, before the election, Russia's going to invade America. I said, don't listen to that stuff. It just, you know, and you feel like sometimes you just need to stand back. And in, in enough time, they're going to prove that they don't know what they're talking about. And they're wrong. And Gamaliel says, just careful what you're doing to these guys. Look, this, we can learn from history. There's, there's, there's other people that have done things like this, tried to start movements. And because it wasn't of God, it faded away. Look at 38. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men. Let them alone. I wonder if he's thinking about Nicodemus saying that morning, hey, Gam, if you go talk to these guys, I'm telling you, they don't understand what they're up against. And now I say unto you, reframe these men from these men, let them alone. Here's his reasoning. For if this counsel or this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. We've seen it before. He just gave a couple examples. And Rome will handle it. They don't put up with this kind of stuff. But if it be of God, you can't overthrow it. You're fighting a losing battle lest haply you be found even to fight against God. She's telling this to the Sanhedrin. Look, Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. And the gates, again, that's the place where the councils took place. That's, we go to Israel with us, we, we look at the ancient gates. 
The gates didn't chase anybody down the street. The gates were the place where people sat and did counsel and the war plans were made. And Jesus said, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against my church. And they haven't. And even in these conditions, persecution was the thing that began to spread the gospel throughout the entire Roman world. And persecution, instead of shutting the church down, spread it like wildfire. And Gamaliel says, look, if this is of God, you're not going to be able to overthrow it. Lest happily you be found to fight against God. And to him they agreed. <laughs> Verse 40 is funny. They all agreed with them. So when they had called the apostles, they beat them. <laughs> he said, let them alone. <laughs> he said, you're right. You know what? You're right. Get those guys and beat them. When they beat them, they commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. That's the only thing that they agreed with. They let them go. They beat them. The, the, the Greek word is skin them. This is the, the Jewish council, so it's not a Roman scourge, but it's a rod. And they would pull down their robe to their waist, and they beat their back with 39 stripes with a rod, with a stick. Paul's been beaten a number of times, he had said. They beat these guys. This is not a happy day in many ways. 39 times on each of their backs, they beat them. Gamaliel said, let them alone. They all agreed. All right, we'll let them alone. Get them and beat them and get them out of here. They beat them and they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. And evidently, Saul of Tarsus, who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, didn't listen either because he became he becomes the major antagonist of the church in the book of Acts. He becomes the antichrist of the book of Acts. Gamaliel evidently couldn't convince Saul. He was so zealous and didn't see what Gamaliel saw. So they command them, don't speak in this name or don't preach in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. Look at verse 41. And they departed... From the presence of the council, the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Now the tenses are, they were rejoicing as they left. The Sanhedrin's listening to them. Thank you, Lord, that we were counted worthy. You know, they're rejoicing and praising God, walking out, all beaten up by these guys. How do you stop guys like this? How do you stop guys like this? They're walking out praising God that they just got beat for Jesus. I, I'm a wimp. I don't do that. I don't even like to be gossiped about for Jesus, let alone beat with a stick. They departed from the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing as they're leaving is the idea that they were counted worthy. Worthy. I count myself picked on, not worthy. They were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Probably make a bumper sticker out of that because I don't know where this country's going. And daily in the temple, in every house, from house to house, they ceased not. They were told to cease. Don't speak in his name. It says they ceased not. Two things, to teach and to preach Jesus Christ, to teach the Daskalos, to instruct. 
to teach. I'm called to teach God's Word, and I'm not an evangelist. I'm a pastor. I'm called to teach. Uh, the, the way you make disciples, Jesus says, be going, be baptizing, be teaching, making disciples of all nations. To teach the Word. Teaching is for the saved. Preaching is for the lost. Too many of us as Christians have sat in churches and been preached at and not taught. They were constantly in the temple doing both things. They're teaching. Didaskalos. They're instructing. You imagine what it was to listen to the apostles talk about the life of Christ, talk about Isaiah 53, talk about Abraham offering Isaac. Talk. You know, how much? It must have been amazing just to listen to them teach about Jesus and what the Old Testament said. And it says also they were preaching Jesus. First time those words are put together in the book of Acts. They're preaching the gospel. There's already multitudes saved. People are coming. They're bringing the sick, hoping Peter's shadow. You imagine the, the impact of all of this again. Average estimated population of Jerusalem in this day between two and 300,000. Historians tell us by the time the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, there's over 100,000 believers in Jerusalem. That's unbelievable. It's amazing. Amazing. So here these guys go then. The church still has favor, even after they're beat and they're threatened because of Gamaliel and his words. The Sanhedrin says, all right, beat them, get them out of here, and let's let them alone. See, you heard what Gamaliel said. Let's see what this turns into or doesn't turn into. So there's still a season of favor. Sadly, this Sanhedrin that was cut to the heart, that was sawn in two, is going to get one more chance. They're going to bring a young man named Stephen in front of them. And he's going to give, chapter 7, one of the most remarkable sermons recorded anywhere in the Bible. In fact, Saul of Tarsus, who's there, who gives his consent to stone Stephen, when you read Saul's sermons through the book of Acts and Epistles, he steals everything from Stephen. He was so impressed with what was said, no doubt. He was being sawn in two as Stephen was talking. But Stephen just, he, he develops the whole history of the nation. Everything has taken place. And it says they gnash their teeth. And they run on him. And they stone him. And they kill him. And when that's happened, he looks up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father remarkably. And uh, praise to Jesus prayer. Father, forgive them. You know, kind of a deal. Uh, so they're going to get another chance. And God is grace. Now it's going to tell us in the next chapter, many of the priests are coming to the faith. God loves this Sanhedrin, this group of people. And this remarkable group of 12 men standing in front of them giving testimony. Gamaliel standing up and rescuing, you know, trying to give some some thought to the whole process. God loves these men, these dead religious individuals. He loves the world around us, uh, the civil authorities. He loves the people that are taking advantage of the rest of the world, you know, the movers and the shakers, the head of the, the corporate, the global corporations that think they're smarter than us and that we're peons, we're mice in the cage. He loves those people. He loves them all. And because he loves them, he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish. Isn't that wonderful? That's why we're here tonight, but have everlasting life. 
you and I are probably the last testimony this world is going to hear. Yeah, I know that means that means we're getting out of here. I'm with you, bro. Blow the trumpet and get us out of here. But probably you look at what's happening in the world. We could actually be the last voice. We're, we're on the other end of the book of Acts that the world is going to hear. Some generation is going to do that, right? I can't imagine. You look at what's going on around us. I can't imagine that the Lord's going to let this roll a whole lot longer. I mean, we're wimps. We're Americans. You know, we're we're hearing on Afghanistan every day from people we know that are working over there. And uh, people that are being murdered and raped. It's unthinkable. Christians are being killed. That goes on all over the world. In fact, the last century, 1900 to 2000, there were more martyrs than all of the centuries before that combined. And and we don't hear about it. You don't imagine it. But there were millions and millions of martyrs in the last 100-year period. That's the world we're in. But God still loves that world. And uh, he still puts people in front of them to speak the words of life. And there's still something for us to do while we're here. Amen? And... uh, Let's stand. Let's pray. We'll sing a last song. Lord, just look around this room, Lord. We're kind of all ages, all sizes, all colors, Lord, all widths, all heights. Uh, We're all dressed. Some of us wouldn't wear each other's clothes. Lord, wouldn't dare. Uh, Lord, only you could gather us together. Lord Jesus, and make us love one another, Lord. Make us care for one another, Lord. Make us push aside every carnal division the world knows about so that we could be one. And Lord, you said that the world we live in would know that we're your disciples by the love that we have one for another, Lord. Let that be a hallmark of our fellowship, Lord. Let something alive be going on here, Lord. Let the love of Christ be shed abroad from our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. Let people come in here, Lord, and kind of be overwhelmed and say something's going on there. Even if I can't explain it, I'm going back. And Lord, get hold of hearts. Let the multitudes come again as they did in the book of Acts. If we need to get a beating for that, then beat us. But bring the multitudes, Lord. Bring the multitudes. And all of the glory will be yours, Lord. We have no reservoir to accomplish anything like that. Nothing in our toolbox. Except bent knees. A broken heart. Wet eyes. Hear us, Lord. Hear our hearts. Every one of us have friends and relatives that are unsaved. Every one of us have prodigals in our family. Every one of us have moms or dads, aunts or uncles or cousins or spouses or sons and daughters or grandkids that are, that are lost, that don't know you. So, Lord, hear our prayers. We study these things. Lord, what a time to be in Revelation in the book of Acts, Lord. Let these things speak to us, Lord. 
you recorded this, Lord, not to frustrate us, but to put it in front of us. You said no good father ever provokes his children, Lord. So this is not here to be a carrot, Lord, that hangs in front of us. This is here, we believe, for us to embrace and hold and treasure have become part of our lives. Lord, we trust you to do that. We look to you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen.